tender age of five or 35 or 75, Lord, may we make this city our mission. Help us, Lord, to reach those that you love so much that you would lay down your life for them. Help us, Lord, to express your love. For you are the king above all kings. We are your ambassadors. Speak to us, Lord, of your truth this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If we were to look over the sweep of whatever you've heard and learned and preachers on the radio, preachers in churches, if you grew up in a church in Sunday school about the disciples, and I wasn't even raised in the church but became a believer as an adult, I would have to say that when I look back, I always see the disciples, namely the 12 with the exception of the one, as always pretty much always presented, not even directly necessarily, but just by the fact that they were Jesus' disciples as being guys who pretty much had it together. I mean, we certainly see some of their, their, the reality of who they were and all. But for the most part, they are to be emulated, they're to be respected. And, you know, if you're going to pit yourself against anybody in comparison, you, you know, pick one of the disciples and look what they did, look what they were, all of that that goes with that. And yet, at the end of the day, when you consider the special training, if you will, that they had, the special privilege that they had, meaning living with Emmanuel, God in the flesh, for three years, not just going to a weekly class, but I mean living with him, being there, eating, sleeping, literally breathing with him for a period of three years. And if you start camping on them and start looking at the reality between the lines and even not so much between the lines, and a lot of times if you read the scriptures even not too carefully, you start seeing that, you know what? <laughs> These guys were, I mean, very real in all the extreme ways with the negative connotations of that. And yet tend to think of those as being, well, this is what a mature believer is. This is what mature Christians look like. This is how they act. After all, they spent three years with the Savior, with God in human form. This morning what I want to do as we jump back into Mark is keep that in mind. But what I'm going to do when I get toward the end of this is going, I'm going to bring in the man Nicodemus. And we're going to look at Nicodemus put against the backdrop of the disciples and make some important, I hope, applications concerning that. So where we are this morning in Mark chapter 14 is we are leading right up very quickly to all that takes place. We're still in Passion Week in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus there in the garden is going to give them a hint as to what lays ahead. In Mark 14, beginning in verse 25, just for, for some immediate context, Truly I say to you, Jesus speaking, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then Mark adds, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus has just had what will be his last earthly meal 
with the disciples. But of course, it's more, and I trust we know that it was much more than just a meal. It was, in fact, the Passover supper, which by God's intention and design all the way back from its inception in Exodus about the Passover is just full of meaning about the very situation that they are now entering into on the timeline of history, even though it was something that was implemented a thousand years earlier. The Passover meal that Jesus just had with them was always indicative of the ultimate victory and the security and the certainty of the salvation pointing to a future result which is yet to be realized by them and even by us and that is pointing to that day of perfected fellowship or perfected communion with our heavenly father and this was an annual observance and now Jesus says that until that he will not partake again of such a meal again until the promise of that heavenly union of the faithful is realized And then again, Mark added that they sang a hymn. Well, the hymn that they sang, because it was part of the Passover ritual, was called the Hallel. It is the word from which we get our word, hallelujah. Hallel means basically praise. Luya, the contracted form of Jehovah, simply means praise the Lord, which is why we say hallelujah. It means praise the Lord in Hebrew. Well, the Hallel was something that was sung, and it really derives from and was recited from Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. As we get to Psalm 118 and even toward pretty much the end of Psalm 118, this is what we read and this is what they were singing. The right hand of the Lord does mightily. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does mightily. Now remember where they are again. They're taking the Last Supper and then they're headed for the Garden of Gethsemane and all that that means. I shall not die, but I shall live and will tell what the Lord had done. The Psalms of the ancient Hillel foreshadow the events at the time of this supper and what is about to take place. And in what is a real mixture of emotional content, sort of bittersweet, is Jesus says something very startling, which is emphasized in our text by the juxtapositioning, that means the location of the verses to the preceding verses. It's emphasizing the startling nature of Jesus' statement. Again, remember, they all just finished eating and they just finished singing what is the praise, worship. And Jesus says, taking some liberty here, oh, isn't that sweet? You guys are singing your hearts out. You're singing the Hallel. It's a really nice spirit of worship right now. Are you feeling good? Y'all upbeat and confident in the words that you're singing in your worship of me? That's what I imagine going on. Then Jesus says the startling thing. You will all fall away. Here you are in your reverie and in worship, and I tell you, you will all fall away. Momentary application. True confessions from yours truly. 
When I see people in worship, when I watch a worship video on YouTube or something, because I'm looking for a new song or, or uh, going over new songs that we're going to be doing in worship here on Sunday, and, you know, the, the videos are, are almost always, if they're not in a studio, they're from a, a, a mega church where there's thousands of people gathered in worship, and the lights are always very low, but then you've got the colored, usually oftentimes a blue light background with even fog and smoke going up from the stage. Sometimes there's even a laser light show going on. And you look out and all you see are the little silhouettes of people there with their hands raised in worship and their bodies swaying and everything. And I look at that and honestly, I wonder, I wonder how many of those worshipers are there with a purity, even given our fallenness, okay? I'm not talking about perfection now when I say purity, but how many are there with a sense of a purity of worship that if we go back only six hours in the day leading up to their time in worship, what were they doing or what the day before? What were they about the day before or the night before? What were they about the weeks before leading up to this event or whatever it was? Does their life mimic who we are seeing in that scene where they're up there and their hands are raised to God in worship and praise. And then what happens when that event is over? How many of those thousands walk out of there and return, which is undoubtful, to the fornications that they have been steeped in and are steeped in, in all the things that the culture has approved of, that, that God absolutely is abhorred by, how many of those who were there in that worship returned to just the way things were exactly for more of the same? And I think about so many Old Testament passages. The one that came to mind, because it's nearest to the New Testament, is from the book of Malachi. And I have to give the context of the brief passage that I'm going to read from that book because what we see and what the passage relates to is the uber-hypocritical worship of God's people, Israel. I mean, they had their worship services. They had the trappings. They were doing worship by the numbers. They were filling in the blanks of where God said, here's the blanks that need to be filled in. But God is pointing out to them the abject hypocrisy of their lifestyle and yet still playing this game of worship. This is what we read in Malachi 3.5 now. I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages and the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And this is to his people, Israel. Well, as a result of that, some of God's people got it. In verse 16 of Malachi 3, this is what we read. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention, and he heard it. And it was so impressive, apparently, that a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And how many times through the Gospels do you hear Jesus say, pertaining to the uber-religious, 
You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Well, the disciples just got done singing the praise, and Jesus tells them, yeah, that was great. You're all going to fall away. You're all going to desert me. And why does Jesus know that? Oh, because he's God. No, because he knows the words of the Torah and of the prophets and of the other writings. Zechariah has written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This brief pericope is up and down news from the Savior. The good news is the victory is certain. And we will have a supper of perfection in all ways. The bad news is you're all going to desert me. The more bad news is the shepherd will be struck down. But the good news is, and after I am raised up from being struck down, I will meet you in Galilee. And before the depth of the meaning has even a millisecond to settle in to the disciples, Peter, bless his heart, has something to say. Of course you do, Peter. Verse 29 to 31. Oh, Lord, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Peter, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all, they, the rest of the disciples, they were all saying the same thing also. Now, Peter categorically rejects, think about this, Peter categorically rejects the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word from the word himself. Remember John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Peter is adamant. And why shouldn't he be? I mean, humanly speaking, come on, Peter, Peter's a good guy, and you'll see I'm not really picking on him, it sure sounds like it, but I'm not. Peter's a good guy, and Peter is adamant that he is not in any way, shape, or form ever going to deny Jesus, even if he has to lay down his life. And why shouldn't he be so adamant? Because Peter knows himself better than anyone, Uh, almost anyone, except the God with whom he is disagreeing. And the others, Mark tells us almost parenthetically, are happy, it seems, to let Peter take the role of the boisterous, incensed leader. And Mark adds a little tagline that they were all saying the same thing also. Peter insists he will not desert. Meaning what? He is saying, Jesus, you are wrong and I am right. Why now might Peter be so insistent? Insincerity? No, I really don't think so. Peter was all in. We've seen enough glimpses of Peter through the Gospels to know Peter was all in. 
Peter wasn't somehow just kind of putting on this show to convince himself. But you see, what Peter said in that moment was exactly how he felt, with absolute sincerity and absolute conviction in the safety and the security of his gang and of the master himself. What he says to Jesus is absolutely what he is feeling. And the others are like, uh, yeah, yeah, what he said. You think they're sincere for the most part? I honestly do. But not with the conviction of the blustery fisherman who is becoming a fisher of men. Some like to get wrapped up in the mental patterns of Peter and some of the rest of the disciples. And while this pericope is not written to be a primer on psychology, there is derivative application that can be instructive amidst the cultural mystique of our day in particular regarding this silly notion of to thine own self be true, you know, know thyself and to thine own self be true. And right kind of part and parcel of that whole ridiculous mindset is this idea of finding oneself. I don't hear this as much today as I did back in our day. By our, I mean me and Barbara and some of you others, right? Because back in our day, oh, this idea of, of you have to find yourself was just, just kind of huge. And there was even a, a, a pride of the parents of those, those kids who were between high school and college, even though they might have thought they were a little whacked out and all. But they still there was that little pride and they'd tell somebody, well, you know, Peter... Peter graduated, and uh, right now he's over in Europe, backpacking through Europe, trying to find himself. We're like, really? Oh, yes. I, I just, you know, it's just kind of wonderful instead of just going to college and, you know, going down and doing the things by row. He's, he's there to find himself. And, oh, there's our little daughter, Sarah. She's hitchhiking across America. Why is she doing that? Oh, because... She just, she needs to find herself. It's like, what? Well, three points of derivative application. First, anyone interested in finding one's self, the place to look is not in a career, is not in a mirror, it's not in a hobby, it's not in a dream, it's not in a location or an event. It is by looking squarely in the Word of God. The anthropology and the psychology of the one who made man is the best source for discovering one's self, for finding oneself. And what we find out is that contrary to all conventional wisdom today, sit down, oh you are, man is not basically good. I get so aggravated when I hear this. Man is not intrinsically or basically good. It's those few bad ones that give everybody else a bad name. What we find out from the scriptures is that man is not basically good at our core. And by the way, any of our starry-eyed students who might be in here this morning, 
and you might be thinking that you wish to pursue further education in counseling or psychology or sociology, please understand that the cultural foundation of everything that issues forth today out of secular higher education is constructed on that foundation, which is a foundation of sand. Since Adam and Eve, who really were basically good, they're the only ones that we can say, yep, they were basically good, right until the point where they sinned, and now everybody else inherited their sin so that now they are basically not good, but in fact are basically flawed, basically bad. This is what the Bible says about man being basically good, Romans 3.10. There is none righteous... None. Zip. Nada. There's not anyone who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Okay, okay, I'm getting the message. It's enough. No, it's not. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you know what? Even though this is centuries later, even millennia later, it didn't take that long in Genesis 6. We see God saying, and the every intention and thought of man's heart was only evil continually which is why he destroyed the world, except for Noah and his family. Number two, it's never advisable. I hate it when people say never say never. Oh, baloney. It is never advisable to argue with God no matter how convinced, no matter how passionate, no matter how emotional you are, no matter how many reasons you can come up with to counter the living word about something which God has made clear. God's truth always trumps our truth. No exceptions. Point number three. The only way you can even begin to build the foundation of truth with a capital T by which to judge your truth and my truth with a small t is spending time with and in the living word. But as Peter and the eleven demonstrate clearly, that doesn't mean that we will listen. Well, Pastor, I, I, well, I, know, I know what God's word says. But I, and you can fill in the blank with your imagination. Anytime you have a doubt, well, I know what God says, but I just run back to Eden and spend just a few minutes there. It only takes a moment. So Jesus informs his followers that they won't be following too much longer. And the, sh the scene now shifts to the Garden of Gethsemane. Once in the Garden, what happens? Jesus is there, okay, he's there with the, all the twelve, but they're at the Garden, and now Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to a different part of the Garden, leaving the rest, the other nine, saying, okay, you guys just stay here, and Jesus takes off with Peter, James, and John. Now, we don't know this, but what do you suppose... 
just might be going through the minds of the nine who are told to stay back and wait. Well, let me just remind you of a few things here. If we go back to Mark 9, verse 30, this is old material from way back a bit. They went out, they being Jesus and the disciples, and began to go through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he has been killed. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. This is the first time that Jesus tells them that pointedly of what the future holds in store. This is a heavy, deeply emotional time. But they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. So they got to where they were going. They came to Capernaum and Jesus began to question them. He already knew. What were you discussing, by the way, on the way when I was there and kind of spilling my guts out to you? What were you guys discussing? And when he say discussing, he means arguing about because they were. But they kept silent. For on the way, we're told why they kept silent. Because what were they discussing? They discussed with one another, which of them was the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> well, we noted back then that their discussion about who's the greatest was nestled right in the midst of Jesus again, foretelling them of what is now about to come to pass concerning the truly and only great one. So Jesus gets to the garden and he has the nine disciples sit down. He takes Peter, James, and John and goes off to another part of the garden. Given the passage that I just read in Mark 9, do you suppose that there might just be any kind of murmuring going on by the nine as Jesus saunters off with the three without them all? Gee, it seems reasonable. And why Peter, James, and John, though? Why those three? Well, you might remember that in past, in the Mar in the, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, you might remember that Peter, James, and John were also selected by Jesus to go with him in exclusion of the others up to the Mount of Transfiguration. It was also Peter, James, and John that he took with him into the house of the synagogue official's daughter who had died, we're told in Luke 8, where Jesus raises that little girl from the dead with Peter, James, and John in tow. It's hard not to see that these three, for whatever reasons, are standouts, if you will, among the twelve. Now, does that mean that these three were, were favored or they were in some sense Jesus' pets? I don't think so. But let's face it, we're dealing with fully human people, including Jesus, fully human, fully God. The disciples, fully human. That in any kind of a situation where you take a dozen people and you bring them together to, to put their heads together and you're the leader and you're going to try and focus them on a particular task, purpose, or mission, or assignment, and we're going to all do it together, and okay, we're going to have, you know, you do this, and you do this, and you guys do this. There's always going to be standouts. That's just the way it is. If you've ever volunteered, not volunteered, if you were ever assigned to do a class project with three or four other students, right? What happens? A leader emerges, the diligent, studious one emerges, and then I emerge. Hey, you guys take care of it. That's awesome. 
I'm in my little tank here and I'm getting a buzz from the oxygen tab. (laughs) These three, for whatever reason, I think, somehow, were standouts. And not for the same reasons at all. So when things of a unique or a particularly important nature were going on, Jesus, it does seem, as I said, mentioning the situations gravitated toward them, which among other things means that Peter isn't the loose canon loser as he is sometimes portrayed. And now Emmanuel, God with us, in an extreme and very personal situation, reveals a vulnerability that can only be seen within the context of the mystery of incarnation, showing itself as Jesus' humanity now takes full center stage. Verse 34, And Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Can you fathom? No, you can't. I can't. Verse 35, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And Jesus was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, and yet not what I will, but what you will You see, we cannot separate the fact of Jesus' unity with the triune Godhead, which means he fully understood the holiness of God and the requirement of sin that was to be paid for on him. And while I don't believe that Jesus knew the particulars of what lay ahead of him, he certainly knew the generalities of what was in store, and it was nearly unbearable even for him. The Son of God suffering for what you did to Him and for what I did to Him. Verse 37. And Jesus came and He found the three that He told to keep watch, Peter, James, and John, sleeping. And, singling out Peter, said to him, Simon, his name was Simon Peter, Simon, are you asleep? And I don't really think it's so much Jesus like being shocked as much as he's rubbing in a certain little point to Peter. Peter, remember what you said just a few minutes ago? Oh, no matter what happens, Lord, man, I'll never leave... Peter, are you asleep? Really? Could not even you keep watch for an hour? Keep watching and praying. Now listen to what Jesus says. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation, Peter. The Spirit is willing. Oh, but the flesh is weak. And do you know that I never, all these years, I never saw this until preparing this message. I never saw these two things. First, 
that Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to be praying, not for Jesus. Somehow in my head, that's what I had in my head. No, he tells them to be praying for themselves. Why? Number two, because their spirit really was willing. Again, in their human, dear Peter was the outspoken one, but even James and John as being the standouts. In their spirit, boy, they, Peter meant everything that he said. And he says, I love your spirit, Peter, and your heart. But the spirit is willing and your flesh is so very weak. Pray for yourselves. And this just may tell us at least why, why Peter at least is a standout. Peter was absolutely intensely sold out to Jesus, but like all of us, he was human and even with the most sincere and passionate desires, failed big time. With the weight of the impending execution growing near, it seems Jesus gets up to solicit some extra prayer support, but even his three standouts are snoring. And this, by the way, is repeated two more times when Jesus awakens them to inform them that now he has been betrayed. We know what follows. Just as Jesus predicted, the disciples abandon him once he's captured. The knowledgeable, the privileged, the mature, all the disciples bailed. Not just Peter, but all of them bailed, all twelve who loved, ate, slept, walked, and lived and breathed with Jesus for three years. Now, think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, not one of the twelve. Nicodemus, in fact, a member of the party of the Pharisees who were Jesus' arch enemies. And now we think about this Nicodemus, who we know from previously in Mark, showed more boldness, showed more Christian or spiritual maturity in taking his stand on Jesus' behalf in very intense situations. Nicodemus. The disciples lived with Jesus for three years. They had personalized mentoring. They had individualized tutoring when necessary. Even remedial instruction. They not only saw miracles take place, but Jesus had them participate in those miracles. And some of them they even did themselves. And when push came to shove, what happened? They turned and they ran. Dear Peter not only ran, but denied him. Not once. Who? Not twice. Nah, Jesus. Nah, no, 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 don't know the guy. But three times. I don't know him! Nicodemus stood his ground in the center of a very dangerous and tense situation, and Nicodemus had only one recorded it anyway, conversation, one conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, as I said, was part of Jesus' arch enemies. Why was Nicodemus so changed and almost instantaneously mature above his chronological time of even knowing Jesus? 
it was because God's rules were condemning by design. God's law, God's rules, God's guidelines, God's guidelines, all condemning by design and impossible for anyone to obey and succeed. This Nicodemus knew with the depths of his being. He knew that he was hopelessly and permanently, he thought, lost. And so God did for Nicodemus and for us what no one could ever do for themselves. And for Nicodemus, such a gift, such an offer, could only be accepted with gratitude. So when the bad people from Nicodemus' posse come, in John 7:44, we read of it, they wanted to arrest Jesus. Nicodemus said to them, Our law, Nicodemus now, who's one of them, who's one of the party that want to arrest Jesus with the goal of getting rid of him permanently. Nicodemus stands in that environment amidst his peers and say, Hold everything. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing. Does it? He knew darn well it didn't, and he knew that they knew it didn't. Do you realize the boldness that took? They, meaning his own peeps, the Pharisees, answered him, Oh, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Wow, how quickly your friends turn. Nicodemus didn't cave. And abruptly the passage ends, and what are we told? Everybody went home. (laughs) What? Yep, Nicodemus did not cave, and everybody went home. The only other time, the only other time that we hear of Nicodemus with Jesus is after Jesus is dead. After these things, John 19, 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he could take away the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, the only conversation he had with Jesus, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. One man. Nicodemus, one very brief encounter with Emmanuel, and it truly changed his life in ways that the disciples, with the benefit of three years of living with him, had to learn in the years that would follow Jesus rising from the dead. It is no surprise that the body of Christ through the ages is packed with people who have been raised in the church and yet who have been to conferences and camps and have done studies and who parrot the right words, but when push comes to shove in the arena where faith becomes real, where the measure of how much like Jesus they are, which is the only real measure, by the way, of Christian maturity, Time spent around Jesus or even with Jesus is no guarantees of anything unless there is conformity to the will and the likeness of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, says it sharply in the book that bears his name, James 2. Faith 
without works is dead. Maturity is marked by a thankful, by a grateful conformity to the image and likeness of the living Savior. Meaning Jesus isn't just one's Savior. He must be one's Lord. Is he your Lord today? Don't answer that lightly or quickly. Those who call themselves Christians are ready to grab onto and cling to Jesus as Savior, not so much Jesus as Lord. I know what God says, but I. No. No, there is no but I. Is he Lord today as well as Savior? Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, before my brothers and sisters, more importantly, before you, I will not stand here and pretend, Lord, that you are Lord all the time, every day, in every way in my life. But Lord, I will say before you, as you know better than I even know, I do love you as Savior and as Lord. And I am learning on how to relinquish and what to relinquish to bring myself with your help into conformity with your holiness. Not in order to gain the promise of heaven. You've already given me that, but because you have given me that. And it is the least I can do to say thank you. God, break the hearts of all the people that wear your name in the church universal for the duplicities and the hypocrisies and the blasphemies of unholy worship, clinging to the vile sins for which you died. In your name I pray, amen.